0: Welcome out today. I'm glad to have you join us. For those visiting, we're especially delighted to have you here, and we hope that this service is a blessing to you and an encouragement as well. My name is John, and it's my delight to uh, lead us through the scriptures today as we look um, at this wonderful book called Philippians that we've been in the midst of uh, mining for some really incredible things about Jesus. Back in 2015, Rhonda Rowdy Rousey was at the top of the sports world. There was probably no one more. Uh, well-known and sought-after than her. She was the undefeated mixed martial arts fighter. She was the highest-paid athlete in the UFC. Eleven of her fights she won in the first round by knockouts. ESPN named her as the best female athlete on the planet. Two other magazines uh, described her as the most dominant active athlete. And Nielsen Entertainment described her earning potential in terms of endorsements and money that she could get on the equivalency of NBA superstar, LeBron James. In 2015, she was actually the most Googled person on the planet. More than the president, more than any celebrity, she was at the top of the world, until, in a split second, it all fell apart. She defended her title against Holly Holm, and in the second round, just seconds into it, Holly Holm landed a knockout blow And in that moment, everything fell apart for Rhonda Rousey. Later, she would go into um, a depression right afterwards as she tried to figure out what her life was about. And as she went on a talk show, the Ellen DeGeneres show, to describe what happened to her in that moment, she opened up and gave us a sight of what was happening in her heart. She said, Honestly, my thought in the medical room? I was sitting in the corner and was like, What am I anymore if not this? Literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. In that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. Thankfully, Rhonda Rousey didn't go through with her suicidal thoughts. She found strength within to keep pressing on. But she does illustrate for us what happens when our hearts get set on something other than God and look for that meaning and significance and purpose, and we might even say salvation, in something that we can do and accomplish. Now, we've been looking at these words of Saul of Damascus, and he wasn't on top of the sports world, but he was on top of the religious world. And like Ronda Rousey, he had set his heart on what he could do and what he could perform. His... Idol was religion, we might say, which sounds kind of odd because you think religion with with God and and spiritual things, but he was using religion to make much about himself, and all of that fell apart in a split second when we could say Jesus metaphorically did a knockout blow with him. He appeared to Saul, or Paul as we describe him with his uh, Gentile name. When he was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and have them thrown in prison, Jesus appeared to him, and everything he thought he had going for him in that moment was stripped away, and he had nothing left except for Jesus who was standing before him. But in that moment, Christ not only forgave him of his sins, but he commissioned him to be his spokesman to the Roman Empire, to be an ambassador for him. And as we've been working our way through this letter, we now meet Paul as he's sitting in prison some four years into his imprisonment, having appealed to Caesar. He's awaiting to have his his case heard by Nero. And he's all too well aware that this may end up in an execution for him. And so he's been writing a letter to his friends living in Philippi. And he's been talking about his own life and what he's learned about following Christ. And we're going to see him today, uh, encourage them to keep on pressing on. But remember, earlier in this letter, he's writing to them, wanting them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not worthy of the Roman Empire, not worthy of Caesar, but worthy of Christ. And so in this particular section that we're looking at now, he's been warning his readers about a danger, not from the outside world, but from the inside world, so to speak. He's warning them against Judaizers. And these Judaizers were like Paul, Jews, who claim to follow Jesus, the Messiah. But unlike Paul, they said that in addition to Jesus, the Messiah, you need to perform works of the law. Namely, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbaths and holy days of Israel. You need to eat kosher foods. In other words, in order to become a Christian and follow Jesus, the Messiah, you need to become Jewish first. It wasn't enough simply to believe in Jesus. But you had to become Jewish and follow Jesus. And so Paul has talked about in chapter 3, his trophy case of all his accomplishments, both his heritage and everything that he performed. And he thought it equaled salvation. Everything added up, surely, to God welcoming him into his presence. But after he met Jesus, he realized that everything he thought was an asset was actually a liability, and it added up to, to nothing, to, to less than nothing, really. And in his asset column, everything that was to gain for him, was now filled with Jesus. And so, he sets up the text that we're going to look at today by saying that he wants to know Jesus. This, this person who is beyond comparison, he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection, that he may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's what's ringing in our ears as we look at the next words that he says. And we're going to call our study today eyes on the prize because you're going to see the apostle Paul encouraging his friends in Philippi and us as well to keep pressing on with the eyes on the prize that we need desperately to do so so let's pick it up in verse 12 he says not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own And let's take this apart just a moment this idea of being made perfect might be an echo of what the Judaizers are saying. You need Jesus plus your performance, and then you're mature, then you're complete, then you have it all together. But Paul says, look, I don't have it all together. I haven't obtained what I'm looking for. In fact, one translation puts it like this. Not that I've already reached the goal, or I'm already fully mature. I don't know about you, but I'm really encouraged to hear Paul say this. Because I look at the Apostle Paul and I think, man, there's a person who has followed hard after Jesus. But when Paul looks at the Apostle Paul, he says, I have a long ways to go. And we should just note that even the most seasoned follower of Jesus among us can honestly say, I am not where I want to be spiritually. The most seasoned follower of Jesus can say that. And the most fresh uh, follower of Jesus can say that as well. None of us is where we want to be. And so... Because we're not where we want to be, does that that mean that we just give up or we cease trying or or maybe just throw in the towel? And of course, Paul would say no. Listen to what he says. (laughs) But I press on to make it my own. That verb, press on, simply means to run after or to pursue. It's used figuratively all over the place to describe people who run races swiftly with, with a goal in mind. And so hold that thought in your mind. Paul says, I press on. I don't know where you are today, my friends. Maybe you're deeply discouraged. Or maybe you're wondering if if it's really worth it. Maybe you look at the state of Christianity in our country. You've seen some of the scandals that the church has, has unfortunately demonstrated. Abuses of power. You just wonder if it's even worth it. Do you give up? And Paul would say, don't give up. Keep pressing on. And then he gives the reason. He says, because. Why, m- what might you fill out the rest of that sentence with? Keep pressing on because. Because if I don't, what would other people think of me? Or because if I don't, I would be disappointed in myself. That's not what Paul says. The reason that Paul says, I press on, is this. Because Jesus has made me his own. I remember exactly the moment when these words captured me i had taught through the book of philippians before i had done small group bible studies on it and i remember one time just reading through this book again and coming to these words and it's almost like i never saw them before but in that moment it arrested me because jesus has made me his own my friends what do those words do in you as you think about those words and personalize them When you look back in your life and you you understand that you've come to this place where you've, you've turned from your failings, from your sins, to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've experienced his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy washing over you, and you realize that Jesus has made you his own. What does that do for you internally? It continues to motivate Paul. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at these words here forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead. Now someone says, see, This is why we shouldn't need any counseling or waste time thinking through the way our past has affected us. We should just keep on pressing on and not worry about those things. I remember a time in my life when I thought that's what this text was saying. It's no good thinking about how your past has formed you. You just need to forget the past and keep on just pressing on. Put your eyes on Jesus. Kind of the secular version of that is just don't dwell on the bad things that have happened to you in the past, but just keep on keeping on just by an act of will. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Contextually, when Paul says that he is forgetting what is behind, he is referring to his past ways of trying to establish his own righteousness based on his moral performance and adherence to the law. I say that, my friends, just because sometimes we hear these verses and we'll take them out of context and we'll try to infuse them with our own meaning and forget what it meant originally. So Paul is not saying don't ever look back and see how your past has formed you. But he says, look back to your past at all those ways that you tried to pr- prove yourself. You tried to make yourself acceptable to God, to barter with him. That's what you need to forget about. That's what you need to put behind. I love the way that Dennis Johnson and his commentary expressed it. He says the credentials that he has just listed make up the impressive resume in which he boasted until Jesus seized him. Paul had not forgotten them in the sense that they were erased from his memory. He can recite them readily, and he did but they no longer occupy his attention as the focus of his concern or confidence as they did before. The prize ahead is infinitely more desirable, and he dares not look back lest he stumble in pursuit of the goal. That's so helpful. So Paul says, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, sorry, what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on. Toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now here for the second time, Paul says, I press on. He's writing this because he wants his friends in Philippi in the midst of a very intense place to try to live for Jesus. This hotbed of Roman patriotism and emperor worship. He wants them to press on. He wants them to see him in prison pressing on. And so he repeats himself two times. I press on. He wants you and I to get that as well, no matter how hard it gets, to keep pressing on. And you see these words around that, straining, the goal, the prize. He's pulling in this race metaphor, and I have to believe that he's, he's working on what they knew also well, that to the south of them is where the Olympics were held. And so this idea of running a race, straining towards what's ahead, pressing on toward the prize, is something they would have been all too familiar with. Except for the Olympics, the prize is a laurel wreath that you get that fades very quickly. That's not what Paul is after. Not human recognition. He's he's pressing on, he says, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What do you think he might mean by that, that phrase, the upward call of God? I read different commentaries this week to try to figure out what different people's takes were on it. But where I landed is that I think what he's talking about here is that just like in the Olympics, when a runner has completed that race and has finished and has gotten the prize, he is called up to the stand. He receives that upward call to come up there to be crowned with the crown and to receive recognition. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. There may be a few other areas that he's buzzing around, but it's not less than that. And I have to wonder if he has in mind those words of Jesus when Jesus said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul, knowing that his execution might be imminent, yes, there's a chance he might be set free, but but yes, there's a chance that he might have to become like Jesus in his death to give up his life, is looking ahead to that day when he receives the call, that upward call to come up and to receive from God. We've already heard him say in this book, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. He's already talked about the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. And so now he's straining towards knowing Jesus more fully, to not giving up, to moving ahead. then he says this interesting little statement verse 15 let those of us who are mature think this way like those of us who understand the gospel of Jesus and are seeking to follow after him let us think this way and then he says if any one of you thinks otherwise God will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what we have attained so this interesting kind of pastoral counseling that he gives there he says I want you to think this way but if you're thinking in other ways, God's going to show that to you as well. I mean, He recognizes that not everyone is where he is. He understands that living in Philippi, or maybe living in, in Bryan College Station, sometimes is difficult to live for the Lord. Not that our situation in Philippi is comparison to them. In some ways, it's it's a little bit too easy to be a Christian in this area. But sometimes it does get hard, especially when you're called out on it. Especially when people say, you're not one of those Jesus followers, are you? Especially when your office says you can't talk about those sorts of things here. Sometimes it gets a little bit difficult. And Paul can understand how sometimes people might shrink back a little bit. But he wants you to be mature and to think like he is on this, to keep pressing on. But if you're thinking otherwise, God's going to show that to you as well. Paul, this man who says, "Not that I, not, I'm, I I'm not perfect, but I press on. He's giving room for them to as well wrestle with that imperfection and what it means. But he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have Christ. Don't give up on Christ. But keep on keeping on. And so let me summarize our study so far like this. The Christian life is like a race in which we continually press on with our eyes on the prize of fully knowing the one who has made us his very own. Can I read that one more time? The Christian life Following Jesus is like a race in which we continually press on with our eyes on the prize of fully knowing the one who has made us his very own. Let's apply this to our lives. There's there's always a number of different ways that we can apply any given passage of Scripture to our lives, but I want to highlight just several of them that came to my mind this week as I wrestled with this and thought about how to apply this in our lives as followers of Jesus. The first one is this. Let the thought that Jesus has made you his own, define reality for you. Whatever else might be confusing or frustrating about the Christian life, let this be the anchor that holds you that Christ Jesus has made you his very own. As we think about the cost to Jesus to make us his very own, how he not only loved us, but gave himself for us. That he was willing to have everything that we've done wrong and all the ways our hearts stray laid upon him so that our sin would be condemned in his flesh instead of in our flesh. And we might receive welcome and grace and mercy. What does that do to you on the inside as you think about the cost to Jesus in order to make you his very own? Shouldn't that produce in us a desire? to to cling to Christ, to to give us more fully to him, to want him to own us forever. We sang this earlier in our song right before the, the message. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no sin or vice remain that resist your holy will. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore and jesus says i've got you i've got you i've done that you are my very own and yes i am making you my very own forever and ever and ever world without end justin bryerly in his book unbelievable he's a host of a podcast by the same name, which brings Christians and non-Christians together. And this is a book that he wrote, um, discussing how after 10 years of talking with atheists, he still is convinced of the truth of Jesus. And in this book, he said, as a Christian, my reality is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It all begins and ends with him. So true. So friends, let the thought that Jesus has made you his very own define you forever and ever. Here's the second point of application. Let's run the race with endurance. Paul is using this metaphor to describe pressing on, straining toward the goal. So let's understand that we need to run this race with endurance. It's interesting. The book of Hebrews is a book in the New Testament, one of these documents that we have. We're not entirely sure who wrote it. Many people think that this is actually a sermon that the Apostle Paul has preached. That's my personal take on it. Some people thought it's written by Barnabas or or someone else, but we're not sure. But in this book, in chapter 11, he talks about people who, who by faith overcame so many obstacles and who kept pressing on when everything was dark and gloomy. And He goes through this list of people that we can read about in Old Old Testament scriptures. But then he gets to this point in chapter 11 where he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that, it might, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Here the speaker is, is writing to people who are struggling to follow Jesus in the midst of intense persecution. He says, look at what has gone before you and how people pressed on and how they kept on pressing on, how they ran the race. And then he turns in chapter 12 and says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here the, the author is, is talking about being like in the stadium and up in the stands there are all those people who have gone before us and they're cheering us on to run this race. So he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run With endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured uh, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you see what the author is saying here? Not only is there a host of folks who've gone before us pursuing hard after God, but there's Jesus who ran his race faithfully, and he endured the cross. And so he says, as you run your race, he understands that you can grow weary, you can grow faint-hearted, but he wants you to keep your eyes on Jesus. So my friends, how we run our race, how we keep on pressing on, is by keeping our eyes on Jesus that one who loved us and gave himself for us. That phrase, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. My friends, are you trying to run this race called the Christian life, forgetting to look to Jesus? No wonder you're so tired. No wonder you're exhausted. No wonder you're so frustrated with yourself. Run the race looking to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane once said, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. What beautiful counsel that is. We tend to get it the other way around. For every one look at Jesus, we take ten looks at our sin. Run this race with endurance, looking to Jesus, eyes on the prize. Paul let's say this. The um, reference here is wrong. This is from 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. I have the right reference on this last slide here. What is Paul saying here? He's like, I do not, I'm running this race, but I'm not reigning, running aimlessly. He has his eyes focused on Christ. And he talks about bringing himself under discipline so that he can run this race well. How does he run it well? How does he keep on pressing on? Eyes on the prize, eyes on Jesus. So, my friends, we've talked about how we ought to let the thought that Jesus has made us his own define our reality for us. We talked about how to run the race with endurance. And I like this slide. (laughs) Let's let grace motivate you to keep on pressing on. You and I both need motivation to do so. And so where we find that motivation is in the grace that is given to us freely in Christ Jesus. Paul already in this letter has told these followers of Jesus, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's because he's already started a good work in you, and he's going to make sure that you get to that finish line. He also said in chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So we run this race because of the grace that's already been given to us. It's not a reward at the end of the race that we receive. Grace is there at the start. And it's there with us every step of the way. A number of years ago, when my wife and I were going through some, some really difficult times. We hung on to this phrase, grace for today. Grace for today. That's what... The Lord gives us His grace for the today. It's not just grace for this moment. It's what we're hanging on to. To keep pressing on. Next week's grace will be, for, uh, will be there for us next week. And next month's will be there for us. And next year's. But he doesn't give us that future grace now, today, because we don't need it. What do you need today? You need the grace to empower you to run the race well today. And when you get up tomorrow, it will be there ready for you as well. So here's an important point. The same grace of Jesus, that saves us, is the same grace of Jesus that empowers us to run the race with endurance. You were never designed, my friends, to run this race in your own power. It always and only comes by looking to Jesus. In a few moments, um, during our time of communion, we're going to sing these words. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day i know he will renew me until i stand with joy before the throne to this i hold my hope is only jesus all the glory evermore for him when the race is complete still my lips shall repeat yet not i but through christ in me and i'm going to sing amazing grace at the very end and highlight that one phrase for us. "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home.'" So Paul wrote another letter to his friend Timothy, realizing that the end has come for him. And he said these words, "'I have fought the good fight. "'I have finished the race. "'I have kept the faith. "'There is laid up for me "'the crown of righteousness.'" which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My friends, I want you to run in such a way. I want you to, to keep on pressing on in such a way that at the end you can say, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And look in anticipation to that crown that you'll receive when that upward call comes for you to stand before his throne. My friends, what Paul said is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's exactly how we run this race. So I want you to imagine, on that day, when your strength fails, your time has come, and the end is here. And you stand before God, and he welcomes you up, having run the race. And you hear from Jesus the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. When you are clothed completely in him, when the the crown of righteousness that belongs to Jesus is is placed upon you as his son, as his daughter, and you are welcomed in, what kind of effect does that have on you now as you anticipate that day? Does it make you want to hit cruise control? Does it make you want to throw in the towel? Of course not. That view, having the eyes on the prize of being with Jesus and receiving from him works in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. It helps us to keep on pressing on. So, one final quote, my friends. The English preacher Charles uh, Spurgeon put it like this. He said, before I read this, I, I think the Apostle Paul would have a smile come to his face if he could have heard these words. I do want to get a heavy crown in heaven, not to wear, but to have all the more costly gift to give to Christ. And you ought to desire the same, that you may have all the more honors, and so have the more to cast at his feet. Spurgeon, he thinks about his life as this race, knowing that you can't even give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus without Jesus seeing that and promising to reward you and to bless your socks off says, I want to get this heavy crown, but not to make my name great. He's not in that business. He's in the business of making Christ's name great. And he looks forward to that day when he stands before the Lord. And he says, I want to take that crown, everything that he gives me, recognizing that it was only by grace that I ran this race and completed it. And I want to throw it back at the feet of Jesus, because he is worthy of it all. My friends, may you press on, running the race with endurance and grace keeping your eyes on the part